Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 386th show of ROI. And our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Margaret Morse, Associate Professor of Art History and Fine Arts Division Chair at Augustana College who has taken the time out of her busy schedule to discuss with us the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapto. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're going to be talking about the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael with Dr. Margaret Morris, Associate Professor of Art History and Fine Arts Division Chair at Augustana College. First of all, welcome to the show, Margaret. Thank you for having me. We're excited. So, I thought I'd start this off with, with uh, something that, that um, is going to challenge your ability to... Uh, to summarize, can you give us a feel for what the art world is like during Raphael's lifetime? Um, well, the art world in Raphael's lifetime was really just dynamic and growing. Um, and so he lived, so he was born in 1483. He died in 1520. And he was born in Urbino, which was a prominent court, a small court, but a prominent one. So the courts were environments of literature and humanism, um, theater and music, as well as the arts. So he was born in this kind of courtly environment, surrounded by the arts writ large. And then he traveled to Florence, which was a city that for the past several decades had really just been... um, thriving in terms of the arts, um, churches being built, altarpieces, um, palaces and homes of the wealthy that really demanded works of art to fill them. And Raphael filled that call. Um, and then he goes to Rome, which in the early 16th century was a period of rebuilding and re- revitalization for that city. Um, and that really had a lot to do with Pope Julius II, who reigned from 1503 to 15. 15- um, and so he really invested a lot in art and architecture to really proclaim the, the power of the papacy. And he hired the best artists like Michelangelo and Raphael, the architect Bramante, to, to rebuild that city, um, rebuild the Church of St. Peter's, and redecorate his apartments in the Vatican. So it was really just a, a vibrant and dynamic time. A lot of artists were... Um, looking to the past in particular, looking to the classical past um, for inspiration. Okay. Could you describe to our listeners then um, what they considered to be the classical past that you just uh, you explained that that's what they were following? Right. Yeah. So the art of ancient Greece and Rome. Um, and so in places like Rome, there certainly was a lot of, of that around. Um, So artists had architectural ruins at their disposal. There were even um, works of sculpture being, well, that had already been uncovered, but even being discovered at that time. So, for example, a famous sculpture called the Laocoon from the Hellenistic period was 
pulled from the Tiber River during the reign of Julius II, um, another fragment of a torso, which became quite famous. So these ancient Greek and Roman works of art and architecture, particularly sculpture, I think was a big inspiration for a lot of Renaissance artists at this time. Um, there was a focus on the nude figure, well, really the, the male nude figure, um, and an idealization of the human form. Okay, so so Raphael is a we would call him today a prodigy, right? I mean, the the amount of work he produces, he dies at twenty seven, so he's young. Um, thirty seven, so, yeah, thirty seven, yeah. young, but he's young, mm -hmm. and um, you know, so talk us through a little bit about his training wow. and how that sort of influences the way his works develop when he becomes a master in his own right. Right. Yeah. So he was, uh, like I said, he was born in Urbino, and his father was an artist. Um, he was actually a court poet, but also a painter. And so he probably received his initial training in his father's workshop. Now, his father died when he was 11. Um, so exactly his involvement still. We think that his father's workshop continued. Um, so just a little background about workshops. That was kind of the traditional way that artists would be trained. You'd have a master of the workshop who would then take on apprentices. And so apprentices would work with this artist, um, learn that style, do mundane work like mixing pigments and preparing canvases and things like that. But really when, when an artist was apprenticed to a master, they were really kind of learning that style. Um, but then we know we also know, though, at some point, Raphael um, also worked in the workshop of the Perugian artist Perugino. Um, and Perugino had a kind of style often described as sweet. Um, he painted very delicate, kind of sweet figures, although sometimes a little bit stiff, um, lots of religious works and altarpieces. So that certainly provided a foundation for Raphael. And he, so he left Urbino at some point by 1500, we know that he was considered to be a master, so still at a relatively young age. Um, and he went to Florence, um, he spent some time in Florence between 1504 and 1508, and he seemed to be working fairly independently then, um, so taking on commissions primarily of private patrons who wanted images of the Madonna and child for their household settings. Um, he also did a lot of portraits at that time. But when he was in Florence, we know he was looking at other artists. So I remember when I learned about Raphael, um, my professor told our class, and in some ways it was a little shocking, that Raphael was the great assimilator rather than the great innovator, um, meaning he was always looking at what his peers were doing, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and kind of taking the best of them, but transforming it, I think, into something really his own. So he's looking at the art that's being produced in Florence between about, you know, when he was there between 1504 and 1508. And then he goes to Rome. He's called to Rome by Pope Julius II in, in 1508. And that's really where his career takes off. And so by the end of his life, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to trace all the dots in terms of his workshop and training, because there are gaps that we don't know about. But we do know that by the end of his career, he had probably one of the largest workshops um, in Rome, perhaps in Italy, um, as many as maybe 50 assistants. And 
he trained some, like a second generation of artists who went on to become great masters themselves, artists like Giulio Romano and Perino Del Vaga. So he, he really was a great manager. Um, he knew how to manage a workshop and still give the art that was being produced by his workshop a kind of signature style. And that this is something by Raphael even if he didn't necessarily have a direct uh, direct role in making, like painting the actual work. He probably, though, it was through his drawings that the ideas would be disseminated to his workshop assistants, and that gave his workshop production a kind of consistency as far as style. Like I said, a sort of brand that was Raphael. Well, he was still, though, I mean, a workaholic by nature, was he not? Yeah, and he was taking on lots of different commissions, um, you know, so everything from, you know, he was decorating the papal apartments really up until his death. Um, he took on private commissions, decorating some private chapels, altarpieces, portraits. He did the cartoons, which are the full-scale drawings for the tapestries that were once I mean, they're still part of the Vatican, but once would be on display, um, they were actually redisplayed this past year in honor of the 500th anniversary of his death. So, yeah, even though um, he had a big workshop, he was certainly working all the time, but he needed that workshop to be able to to meet the demands of all of these patrons who really wanted something by Raphael. All right, Good. so we only have about two minutes left, and so I have mm -hmm. one last question that, that you may not be able to, to completely answer, but I'll at least throw it out. Okay. So Raphael is usually seen as the, the last of the big three, da Vinci, then Michelangelo. Da Vinci's much older, Michelangelo's a little mm -hmm. bit older, and then Raphael. Um, but there's, there's a lot of rivalry there. Can you kind of talk about how these three folks, did they ever meet each other? What was the kind of interaction that they had amongst them? Yeah, um, we don't have, like, records of direct interaction, but we know that there certainly was a rivalry, I think particularly between Michelangelo and Raphael. Um, and so Michelangelo is often characterized as having a rather temperamental personality, not much of a people person. So while Raphael had a big workshop, Michelangelo was more of a solo act. <laughs> and it probably had to do with him not liking people so much. Um, but, yeah, Michelangelo actually accused Raphael of plagiarism. Um, we do know, we re I mean, it, it's very likely that, so Michelangelo was working in the Sistine Chapel at the same time that Raphael is at the Vatican decorating the Stanza della Segnatura, which was one of the, the rooms in Pope Julius II's apartments that he had Raphael redecorate. Um, and so probably around 1511, Raphael had the opportunity to kind of sneak into the Sistine Chapel and see what Michelangelo was doing, because Michelangelo t had taken the scaffolding down, kind of shift to the next section. So he got a glimpse, um, and he's, he's quoting some of his figures in terms of poses. So there definitely was this, this kind of rivalry. Michelangelo, though, even though Raphael was the youngest of them, Michelangelo lived several decades beyond. Right, right. Right. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy... 
sense of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Mar- Margaret Morse. Associate Professor of History and Fine Arts Division Chair at Augustana College, and we're talking about the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, you get the first question. Yes, Dr. Morris, can you talk about where Raphael is buried and having passed away at 37 years old, what was the nature of his death? What's, what do scholars believe? Um, Raphael is buried in the Pantheon in Rome, which is an ancient Roman temple. Um, It's a fantastic building, uh, and it's very well preserved. It's one of our best preserved um, temples because it was converted into a church, um, and so therefore it wasn't kind of looted for its materials. Um, So, yes, he died at 37 in the year 1520, um, and there was a grand ceremony. Um, It was said he died on Good Friday, which was, we think, his 37th birthday. Um, There are accounts that he was actually born on Good Friday as well. We're not 100% certain of this. Um, We don't know the exact cause of his death. There are some rumors that um, it was from exhaustion, working on so many different uh, projects at the time. Um, But he did seem to have some sort of illness that lasted for about two weeks. He was given his last rites. He dictated his will um, and left. He had a mistress, uh, and so we know that he left her some funds. Um, But then there was this funeral. Um, He was laid in state at the Vatican and then was buried at the Pantheon. Um, So, I mean, that's really significant to think about. Um, There were cardinals who who carried his body. So this was, you know, this really does, it's a testament to how much he was valued and honored within his own lifetime to have cardinals um, and the Pope attend your funeral is is really something extraordinary for an artist as well, because artists up until this point really were considered more craftsmen than great intellectuals. Okay, Ed. Yeah, um, Professor, can you talk a little more about the workshop, uh, which you said at times he had up to 50 apprentices? But if I'm a patron of Raphael's and I commission some kind of a work, I want a Raphael. And yeah. so um, did did he do the preliminary major things on the painting and then everybody else, other people filled in details? Or exactly what was that process? I mean, because those apprentices have to be doing something. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you're right. I mean, if a a patron is is going to hire this artist, the expectation 
to a degree is that they're going to get that artist. But I think a lot of patrons also recognized, um, you know, when an artist is of that caliber, the demands on their time, and uh, they would have been very aware that he did have this large workshop. Um, What was becoming very valued at this time was the idea of the artist. Um, What was the work of art was considered to be like their invention. Um, So it wasn't so much about the execution, although that could certainly be important, um, but the, the ideas behind it. So that was part of what a patron would pay for was the conception that was ultimately Raphael's. So drawings were a really important part of disseminating that idea to pupils. Um, and so there's a, no- I mean, we have a number of surviving drawings of Raphael's. There, there must have been many, many more um, just because works on paper are more ephemeral. Um, you know, the, he would produce like large scale cartoons, which are full scale drawings. So if something is a fresco to transfer that cartoon onto the wall, you actually like pounce it. You, you, put little holes in it so that damages the the drawing to be able to transfer the image. So there must have been even more drawings of Raphael that don't survive because and, of their use. And what was the what was the nature of the financial relationship between Raphael and the apprentices? Uh, were they indentured servants or did he pay them or you know it's just so much of a privilege yeah. to work for Raphael, I'll pay him. <laughs> Well, they weren't indentured servants. Um, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think, I think it had to be of a, yeah, Raphael wouldn't want to be messing with with people that he didn't consider to be um, worthy, really, I guess, to work in his his workshop. But, um, I mean, we don't know, I don't know exactly about payments, but yes, he would have been, he would have had to have paid them. Um, There is, though, you know, it's kind of part of the system where you're going to, you kind of have to work your way up. Um, and so there probably would have even in his own workshop been various levels of, you know, the kind of lower level employee, let's say, doing more of the grunt work. Um, and then those assistants who he really did kind of trust more. Um, somebody like a Giulio Romano, who goes on to be his own great master um, to do more of the the execution of things. Um, now, Raphael, we really do think that he kind of was really overseeing all of these different projects. So, you know, going to the different sites and making sure that things are going according to how he wants, wants it to be, maybe even doing some of the execution. But um, a lot of it was about managing this large workshop. Um, and yeah, he would have had to have paid them. I, I don't know exactly how much they would have made, um, but you know, when you're kind of lower level, then obviously you're getting paid less. Then I'll uh, I'll jump in here. So yeah. I'm interested. We know that at particularly at this time, uh, a lot of 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 artists are doing more than simply art. They're developing. Mm-hmm paints and pigments and fresco styles and um you know all sorts of things like that so you can talk can you talk to us a little bit about the inventor Raphael? well i'm not sure in some ways he was traditional um 
So he primarily worked in fresco as well as oil. Um, he usually did his oil paintings on wood panels, although there are like probably later in his career some oils done on canvas which was becoming more and more common at that time for artists to do paintings on canvas, especially if it had to travel somewhere. Canvas, it's a lot easier to roll up a canvas than, right. you know, a large-scale wooden altarpiece. Um, but fresco is a technique that goes back, I mean, all the way to ancient times. Um, so that's painting on wet plaster. Um, and so there's a long history of fresco painting particularly in Italy. Um, it was a common way to decorate churches. So in Northern Europe, they used stained glass windows to bring in color and light into their churches, but Italy is, is hot and you don't want all those windows in the church. Um, and so, but what they did was they, paint, they painted the walls of their churches with frescoes. And so that was a really common medium that he worked in when it came to larger scale decorative programs like the Vatican apartments that he painted for Julius II and then um, Julius's successor, Leo X. So he wasn't um, necessarily like an inventor in that way. Um, he did have a particular mode of coloring that I think is kind of distinctive to Raphael. So like his contemporary Leonardo, um, we, we refer to this term sfumato to describe Leonardo's painting. It has this kind of smoky quality to it. And that's it comes from the Italian word sfumare, to smoke. So these really sort of darker shadows. And Leonardo keeps his colors much brighter. There's a sort of balance and unity when it comes to color and tone in his work, um, particularly kind of in the middle stages of his career. It gets a little darker. So, I mean, I guess that's sort of a distinctive thing. Another thing that he did that was not necessarily an invention, but was, um, I think, savvy on his part. I think he was just a really savvy artist, um, almost kind of an artist slash businessman. Um, he worked with a printmaker. So while he himself did not make engravings, he worked with a printmaker named Marc Antonio Raimondi, who was an engraver, and had a lot of his drawings transferred into engravings and so with that they could be reproduced in multiple quantities and then distributed far and wide so while a lot of his paintings are in the vatican or in the homes of, of wealthy people his prints could be distributed much more widely the first pop artist <laughs> Well, kind of. I mean, people were doing prints beforehand. Um, Albrecht Durer was another artist who really understood the potential of prints in terms of establishing a name for himself. So he's, he's actually doing this about the same time as Raphael. Um, so it's right around this time. I mean, printmaking really develops in the 15th century, um, but there's a lot of artists in the first half of the 16th century who are really understanding the potential of prints to get their name out there. Okay. Well, that brings me to the question, of course, when you're talking about the big three, um, Da Vinci did everything. Uh, Michelangelo <laughs> well, considered himself a sculptor first, but obviously was brilliant in many other uh, fields of art. Um, was mm -hmm. Raphael just pretty much painting or did he like the other two gentlemen? 
dabble in different forms of art as well, or is it just pretty much he sticks to uh, paintings and drawings? No, he was also in, um, well, I mean, most of his production is painting. I think that we would associate with him. But he did, uh, he was an architect too. So in 1514, he was appointed the architect of St. Peter's after the death of Bramante. Um, now, much of, of St. Peter's Basilica that stands today, we can't really see much of Raphael's designs in it um, because it was changed after that. Um, but he was an architect. There are a couple of villas just outside of Rome that he designed, um, a chapel, the uh, Chigi Chapel in the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome that he designed. So he did do some um, architecture. And he also... Um, recorded. Uh, it was a project that wasn't really completed, but he attempted to make this kind of record of the antiquities in Rome. Um, and so he was he was kind of an antiquarian, I guess you could call him. Um, so going around and, you know, marking and recording the various sites of, of ancient Rome. Okay, Terry. Uh, yes, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, where would we find some of Raphael's artworks today? Are there any in the United States, or are they all overseas? Um, no, you can find them in the United States. Uh, Washington, D.C. is a good place to go to, to find Raphael, uh, the National Gallery of Art. Um, but So there are some in the United States, some of his um, smaller, well, they're not necessarily that small, but um, his Madonnas and Child that he did for like a lot of private patrons, um, portraits, uh, but the vast majority is certainly overseas. I would say the best place to find Raphael is Rome, <laughs> and in particular going to the Vatican, because you go from one room to another to another. Um, he really left his stamp on the Vatican and Rome. Okay. Ed? Yeah. Um, professor, where did he pick up the architectural skills? Um, I mean, I think of what architects today have to know, and of course it's right. much more technically advanced um, but was did he pick that up from just being around all these um, buildings that were being built where his artwork, you know, like painting frescoes and such, or how did, how did he acquire that? Yeah, um, you know, that's a great question. I don't know specifically how he picked that up. I don't, as far as I know, I don't know of a record where he's training with a particular architect, but this was kind of common, um, as Jay was saying, that, you know, you have these artists who are dabbling in everything. Um, so we do know Bramante, what, who was a, the first architect hired to uh, design the new St. Peter's Basilica that was being built in Rome. So this was old St. Peter's the Basilica that had been built under the patronage of Constantine in the 4th century. Um, in the early 15th, 16th century, Pope Julius II wants to build a new church there. So this is where St. Peter is buried. Um, Bramante is the architect who is hired. Bramante is from Urbino, which is also where Raphael is from. And, and in fact, I think they're like cousins, they're distant cousins. So he probably, and it, it may have been Bramante that helped Raphael get commissions in Rome. So it could have been through Bramante that Raphael picked up architecture, so to speak. Okay. And, and at that time, was being an architect more or less, um, you know, coming up with a drawing and telling the actual builders, okay, I drew it, now you build it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was okay. different then. They didn't have, I mean, mathematics was an important part of 
drawing and even art, like doing things like linear perspective, um, that is based in mathematics. So it was a skill that artists were, you know, assumed to or expected to have, but not the level of of math and engineering that an architect would be trained in today. All right. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI and KALA, Sam Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 386th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Margaret Morse, Associate Professor of Art History and Fine Arts Division Chair at Augustana College, who talked with us about the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Lesotho proverb, Pozzo Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.